right. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Who's Your Band podcast uh, this week. We welcome in a very, very special guest. This guy is a TV radio show host. He's a former A&R man for Columbia Records, the former host of one of my favorite all-time shows, uh, 120 Minutes on MTV. An author. We welcome Matt Pinfield. Guys, what's going on? Jeff, Sean, how are you guys? We are fantastic. And on a side note, I would like to also welcome Matt for one reason and one reason only is because when Jeff books shows, he likes to book people from Brooklyn and Staten Island, which pisses me off constantly. Uh, now we have a two to one New Jersey against uh, Staten Island today. So I'm very happy about that. <laughs> yeah. Where in Jersey are you from? I am from Bayonne, New Jersey. Oh, you're ba- uh, you know the Bayonne, uh, Bayonne Bleeder. There's so many, cra- so much great. Oh. Oh, you know? Oh, yeah. I actually, uh, I, I did a roast for him. I produced a roast for the Bayonne Bleeder, Chuck Wepner. And I said to him, I really wish that you would just die so I can be the most famous person from Bayonne at this point. <laughs> That's great. You know, he, that movie that they made about him was great, I thought. What did you think? It was fantastic. We actually had Lee Schreiber there. He came as a special guest. So that was one of those weird, uh, like surreal moments where he was like, can I just sit next to you so I can have dinner and quiet? I'm like, Oh sure. Ray Donovan, you can totally sit next to me. That's totally yeah. fine. That's we, had awesome. a, we had another Bayonne guest on the show. Oh, we did. Do you, uh, Matt, oh, the, Robert the, Tepper. I'm going to just test Matt right off the bat. Yeah. Robert Tepper, you know, no easy way out. Yeah. That's great. That's really cool. Yeah. A lot of Jersey history, you know, it's funny. Oh yeah. I, I posted something yesterday. My, one of my, female friends we were just for some reason we always uh, end up going shopping around here in LA and I was picking up some tomatoes and I swear everybody on my social media was going yeah but the tomatoes are better in New Jersey <laughs> <laughs> that's true because there's so much Jersey pride you know what I mean and uh, they weren't wrong I said yeah my daddy said his garden where you know back before I really appreciated tomatoes you know when you're a young kid you know yeah yeah tomatoes are all right but now I'm, I, I, I remember those gigantic beefsteak tomatoes and oh yeah yeah I get I get a lot of shit because I always say that I love LA. I absolutely love everything about California. And people are like, but you're from Jersey. How could you like that? And I just see it as it's a different extension. It's a totally different extension of the East Coast and the West Coast. I love the underground scene in LA. And I don't even consider it an underground scene. I'm talking like I will never go to a bar out here and just hang out but when i go out to la i spend five nights at the rainbow every single time i'm there yeah the rainbow, and the food's actually good at the rainbow you know people always say you know you talk about a you know bar food the food is actually really good there and now you know they're doing they're still doing outside dining all the governor uh nuisance uh, or governor douche or whatever you want to call him <laughs> um here in california i mean i guess he's doing the best he can but nice. you know he closed down everything, including the gyms, which was a pain in the ass for me because even the, where I live here, there's a gym in the building where hardly anybody used it but me while, when they reopened it again. And then, I, then they closed it down. I'm like, really? So now I ordered a bunch of dumbbells. I got a bench coming, you know? And, and really, it's hard to find anything, any workout equipment right now during COVID because even on Amazon, it's like, yes, this will be available in 90 days. Like 90 days? Yeah, exactly. The gyms again by then. I'll that be 600 and, pounds by then. Yeah, that yeah. and pool equipment. <laughs> but um, speaking of being a Jersey guy, let's go back to your beginnings, Matt. You went, you grew up in Jersey. You went to Rutgers University, right? 
Yes, I did, yeah. Is that where you got your start in music? Were you involved in college radio there? Is that yeah, where it all began for you? I did college radio for years there at Rutgers. In fact, the first time I did a radio show um, there, it was, you know, in those days, I mean, it's amazing now how technology, you can do so many things DIY. And, you, you know, we would, you know, we would use equipment. I mean, it even goes back further, you know, because my dad, uh, you know, was not only a physics teacher in East Brunswick, New Jersey, but he was the head of the audiovisual department. So he had this catalog where you could order these kits to build things. And one, one of the kits that he bought for me was a transmitter, AM transmitter. So we used to do radio shows with the neighborhood kids in East Brunswick, you know, on rainy days when we weren't out doing other stuff, playing baseball, playing war or whatever, riding our bikes. You know what I mean? You know, we literally, I would do radio shows in my basement. So, you know, we, I bought a radio jack mixer and, you know, we had some beat up turntables. That were and who fantastic. would you listen to? Who, who, was, who, was, on, who was on the a young Matt Pimfield's playlist back then? Oh, I mean, everything really, you know, like Beatles, Stones, Who, um, you know, Zeppelin, uh, you, you name it. I mean, it was really a, a little bit of everything, I guess, you know, and even before, you know, I mean, David Bowie, there were just so many people. I just love rock and roll. There's no question about you it. You weren't playing Bobby Sherman or no, David? No, I, I couldn't stand Bobby Sherman, no. And, you know, I know David Cassidy's son, Bo, very well, but I was not into that either. I was kind of, yeah, I skipped over all the kids' kind of heartthrob stuff. I was never into it. You know what I mean? I mean, so Who I, got you into that? Who got you into the harder rock? Well, I had an older brother. You know, I had an older brother who was 10 years older than me and a sister who was six years older than me. So you know, my brother would always buy me cool records. Um, you know, I mean, I would go out and, you know, get things myself, you know, with the money. I mean, I was, I was really, I was ambitious to buy records. I always wanted to buy 45s and buy albums. Right. So, you know, I remember going out and buying Cream Clearwater Revival's Cosmos Factory. But my brother, you know, literally every birthday and, you know, Christmas would get me things like, the first Zeppelin album when it was brand new and I was a little kid, you know? Do you remember like when you would open up the plastic and you'd, and you'd, 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 you'd you know, you pull open thing and that smell that would come out from the vinyl? Yeah, of course, yeah. I mean, it was amazing. I mean, I, I, I loved that. And like I said, my older brother and sister, I had a sister who was six years older, brother who was 10 years older. And he was really into cool music. And I just remember being a really little kid and him listening to Hendrix and Cream. And, you know, he just had good taste. My sister was huge into The Doors. So, I mean, all my music was playing around my house when I was a kid. But yeah, I just, I wasn't into the Osmonds. You know, I used to bust balls with kids that were into the Osmonds. Wasn't into Bobby Sherman. That was all popular music back in the uh, 70s, though. Remember? Yeah. That was all stuff that was played on AM radio, which was- Yeah, oh, I love AM radio too. I mean, I, but I like things like, you know, I certainly like Three Dog Night, the Grassroots and, you know, Grand Funk Railroad and all those things and Bad Finger and, you know, all that all that stuff. I mean, but even back then it was amazing because AM radio uh, in those days, you know, played everything. So, you know, you'd have like Motown, Stevie Wonder and Smokey Robinson, but you'd also have, you know, like, you know, rock bands would have major hits, you know what I mean? Rock was, rock was, you know, really prevalent on the charts back then. So it was cool. It was, it was very different. You know, top 40 today is, sounds like one long song really <laughs> do you have a do you have a holy grail record that you're still looking for um you know i don't i you know because i've pretty much gotten everything you know i've got two record collections actually which is really funny i have one here in los angeles because when i moved to do the morning show at kfog in san francisco um i you know i remember with my ex-girlfriend we would drive up to a town called santa rosa you know I mean, I live in LA now and I, you know, I prefer Southern California, although I have a lot of friends up there and it's beautiful in those areas. But, uh, 
you know, I, I remember that what happened was we were, you know, we, we'd blow out on the weekends because I was on the radio every day. I was doing the morning show at KFOG, then I was tracking the night show, doing two syndicated shows, doing a podcast. <laughs> I was doing so much stuff. It's pretty busy. So weekends would come and we'd want to get out of the center of San Francisco. I lived in North Beach. I actually happened to become friends with, you know, like uh, one of the, what would, you would call the Jersey Wise guys of San Francisco in Little Italy there. He became my landlord. Um, and he's got an incredible history that's right out of Goodfellas or something like that. But, you know, I never had a, I never had to, it was amazing because when they moved me out there, I had a relocation apartment for about 45 days, but I got to know the local rest, restaurateurs there. I'd stop by and they were like, oh, you know, they, sometimes they recognize me and they go, you know, you're actually a cool guy. You're not some asshole. You're not, you know, you know you're not <laughs> fool yourself. You're a regular guy. And I'd say, oh yeah, you know, I'm looking for an apartment. He'd go, I'll introduce you to this guy. And so I met this legendary Italian guy um, in San Francisco. And I ended up getting Paul Kantner of Jefferson Airplane's apartment after he died. So uh -huh. I have that apartment. And it's right catty corner across the street, like um, from Cafe Trieste, which is the famous coffee shop that Francis Ford Coppola sat in the back of that shop. And he wrote the screenplays for Godfather 1 and 2 in there. So it was like a really cool neighborhood called North Beach. Um, but you know, you'd want to get away from there because that's where all the strip clubs, restaurants, bars, and everything crazy was. That was the only drawback. The only drawback was you heard people until five in the morning every day <laughs> or some homeless guy would throw a brick through the Cafe Trias window or something insane. So we were like, all right. Uh, so on the weekends, we take off. So I we went to Santa Rosa and I bought this record player. It was from 1956 on four legs, you know, made of wood. Mm -hmm. Um, it was born, it was made by RCA, who had signed Elvis um, the year that he started recording for RCA after he was on Sun Records. And it was this really cool thing and it played. And I remember I was in this antique shop and they had this Allman Brothers album, Eat a Peach. And I put it on see if it played. I put on a waste in time no more. And I went, wow, this thing actually sounds pretty good. So I brought it home and then I started correct, collecting records on the West Coast because I put everything that I owned when one of my best friends owns a trucking company um, in the Kearney, you know, Newport, Newark area. I ended up putting all that stuff in a container there. So I have another record collection on the East Coast, the one that I grew up wow. in through all those years, spun in rock clubs with, and I started over. So now there's a room here full of records. And I'm like, yeah, you know, if I ever have the time, which yeah, well, yeah, that, you know, good luck, right? <laughs> to come back and go through the other records. I mean, including like most of my goal records. Like, I have a bunch down in that, in that hallway there, like James Addiction and Alice in Chains and a bunch of other things. Rancid's over here behind me. I love that uh, Rancid. The only reason it's not covered on the wall back there is I'm having them ship out a bunch of ones I have. Like, you know, Nirvana's Nevermind and Super Unknown by Soundgarden, Bad Motorfinger, you know, Radio at STP. There's, I have all these, all these plaques which are sitting in a container in bubble wrap and I need to get them out here. That's but amazing. anyway, so that was my deal. Like I ended up, you know, I love vinyl. Um, you asked me the question about a Holy Grail record. You know, it's funny, you know, I realized after I started to collect records again, how valuable so many of my records were. But I, I, my deal is it's not, I'm not one of those record collectors guys who, you know, I just, oh, well, this is that rare thing. I mean, I have some really interesting stuff, but I buy the records to listen to them. You know yeah, what I mean? Me so too. Look at them. I'm not like that guy. I, I like, you know, when I buy the 
some guy do it for the pure love of your band. Pure love, the- yeah. For me, it's yeah. not like stats and baseball cards. I am, um, and I'm not against people that do that or have anything negative to say. You're not investing in these records. You're not yeah, looking to collect I off. Them. I want to put them on. You know what exactly. I mean? Exactly. You want to enjoy them. Now, now, me and you, we have kind of like a, a kinship here, and I'm going to explain it in a second. Um, my first job out of college was I worked in the A&R department over at uh, CBS Records, Columbia Records. And you worked at Columbia Records too as an A&R guy, right? Yes. You worked in BlackRock? No, see, I was after BlackRock because all those years okay. doing MTV, you know, when I started in MTV, I wasn't just, uh, well, I started filling in, but when I started doing MTV uh, full-time, I was manager of music programming, which meant I was one of the 10 people that picked the videos when the channel played videos, you know what I mean? When, when it was really breaking bands, they had the thing called the buzz clip. Sure, I, mean, I remember that. So many, you know, there were so many different, uh, you know, genres of music played. It was very, very cool. It was a great place to be. I went from doing radio on the Jersey Shore. You know, I was uh, I was at a radio station called WHTG. It was did you go from college to A&R or did you go from college to radio? I went from college to radio. So I was doing radio on the Jersey Shore. Started there part-time. Ended up as music director and program director full-time. Won some awards. Like, I won these two national alternative music. Commercials. And how old are you when you're doing this? Uh, you know, I was in my... Uh, at that point, I was in my late 20s. Okay. You know what I mean? So, yeah, you know, and, like, when I started there, I was in my, you know, mid, mid-20s. So, you know, I did that for a while. And then, you know, MTV, uh, I guess, you know, it was interesting because I would go out to shows you know the record companies would want you know want you to come out to shows and i was just a lover of, i would go to shows even before and this I, is as you're a dj and this, okay yeah. right yeah and i okay. just i love music i mean i was going out before i even had those gigs but um so i would go to a show and then i'd meet these people that worked in the mtv music department that were mutual friends of others and they started to you know a lot of them listen anybody who was like in Staten Island or Long Island or Lower Manhattan could pick up the radio station because, you know, our signal wasn't amazing. What years were, what, what years were these? Uh, this was like the, uh, from the, you know, late 80s to early, early 90s. Oh, you so know? you were around during like the, um, the height of the New Jersey, New York club scene when Sister and, and, uh, yeah. and Ray, uh, White Tiger and Zebra would, weren't quite signed yet, right? Yes, yes, I was. And, you know, I remember buying the first Twisted Sister single with Under the Blade. Yes, yes. Remember, that, 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 wasn't that the song that they would come out to? First, they would play the Who's song, uh, Long Live Rock, and then yeah. the lights would go down, they would open up with Under the Blade. Yeah, it was great. You know, I love D, man. He's such a good dude, and I love that band. I mean, they're just, they were so cool. They were fun. I loved them. They were always in your face, and I thought that was badass. So... Yeah, you know, it was the thing. You, I was always really happy to support bands that were from around that area of the tri-state, you know? D, of course, being from Long Island, you know, but all those bands would play. Now, whether it was like, whether they were, it was so many different interesting scenes because, you know, the Stone Pony, before we really, the radio station really infiltrated, before there was any WFM that would have those beach concerts. Then all of a sudden, as the station got, got bigger in the area, we became the station of the Jersey Shore. And, um, and it also... In, originally the Stone Pony was, you know, obviously Bruce and, you know, who I love, I love Bruce Springsteen without a question, but there were a ton of Bruce Springsteen knockoffs, you know what I mean? And the alternative and hard rock bands and metal bands would play the Fastlane, you know what I mean? Which yep. was the other club, which eventually before that club got closed, 
before like they got rid of it and leveled that that thing with a wrecking ball um it ended up being a real bat cave like in other words it was infested with bats but right. i spent so many cool shows there punk shows new wave shows metal shows and it was the same thing for city gardens in trenton new jersey the famous venue and this is great because you know john stewart was the bartender at that club city gardens and that was the place where i saw you know everybody from black flag and the replacements ramones all the early new wave shows from psychedelic furs like two men without hats i mean it was that mm-hmm. and, and then slayer you know what i mean slayer and you know anthrax and so you know it was it was, it was a great venue I love that venue too. And that was in the days in the eighties, you know, when you could drive with a 12 pack of beer and throw cans out the window, driving down the highway. And uh, no, <laughs> we used to do that. We would, <laughs> I, I, I lived in Staten Island and we would go down to, do you remember the fountain casino in Aberdeen? Oh yeah. I, you know, I DJed it once in a while at the fountain. Cause I, 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 I probably heard you. Cause I would go down there and that'd be the same thing. You, yeah. you pick, everyone picks up a six pack of beer. You're driving down and as you on the, uh, on the garden state parkway, you have the cans yeah, of beer. Exactly. And no one cared back then. It was before Mothers Against Drunk Driver really made a, you know, made a uh, major impact. I mean, I just want to, you know, it's funny. I was DJing at this restaurant called Charlie's Uncle on Route 18 that doesn't exist anymore. But, but you know, the entertainment was me and uh, Richie Zambora. Now, Richie would be on there every other night but me. So, I, but I always thought it was just one night. So it was really funny. I'm interviewing him and John at the Grammys about 2011. And, you know, I've always been friends with them. Like Dave Bryan, I even stay at his house when I go back to New Jersey and stay some, you know, sometime I'll stay with him. And it was really funny because I'm interviewing John and, and Richie and I'm like, I'm going, Richie, you know, how about you and I starting out over at Charlie's Uncle? I go, and I would do Tuesday night, New Wave night and spin for people to dance. And on Tuesday what, what night- were you, What were you playing? Oh, back then it was like, you know, everything that was New Wave, like Duran Duran, Depeche Mode. I mean, you know, um, I, you know, it's, it's I, everything that was kind of big as it was coming out that period of the early 80s. Um, so stuff that people could dance to, you know, and then rocks, rock stuff, too. So I was, I was mixing it up. But, um, you know, because I mean, to me, it was all rock, you know what I mean? At that period of time, some some of it just was harder than others. But I um, so I'm interviewing Richie and I go, yeah, Richie, I, I was I, Tuesday night, New Wave night with Matt Pinfield and Wednesday night, Richie's and born friends. And then he goes and then I was there Thursday night. Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday acoustic. And John looks at him and goes, what's the matter? You couldn't give our brother another night? You know, it was just pretty funny. <laughs> oh, let me, okay. There's an annoying phone call. Sorry about that, guys. I turned the ringer off. But anyway, so, you know, the thing was, that was what it was like. And some of the, you know, the, the, the really interesting people that came out of that, you know, so Richie was there. So we were friends forever. We used to party together. We were out of control. Um, and then um, we would drive like the city gardens in Trenton, right? Because I would promote all the shows, which meant I could get in for free. And let's be honest, guys, the thing about spinning, right? I'm sober now, but you know, the, the, the reality is when you're like in your twenties and you're, and actually I started DJing in clubs at like the age of 19, because the drinking age went from 18 to 19 to 21. And I rode that white wave all the way up. So I'll say that here, you know, you're, what would you rather be doing when you're a college kid like that? You're getting, you're getting paid to DJ in a club. You're controlling the music. You're meeting girls and you're drinking for free. I mean, you're it's like a life. It's a dream job for you know a young, a young, a young guy. Living the life. <laughs> I do but, that um, at 43 right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good thing, right? I'm glad you're having fun, man, and you can do it. You know, it's great. But um, so anyway, so John Stewart 
was the bartender at City Gardens. I don't know if you guys knew that story, but no. so City Gardens is is this club that was a giant old warehouse, and every every like I said, every genre of music, so many different people played there. And years later, I hadn't seen John in years, so I didn't put two and two together. So because his name was John Lefkowitz, you know what I mean, and um, I um, just. Knew, knew him as, you know, John, you know, we would talk at the back bar. Um, and the thing with John was he would bartend in the back bar when he didn't like the band who was playing up front. And then he would hook me up with free drinks and his friends from college, uh, from Glassboro, that area. So the really funny thing was that John, I hadn't seen him in years. So I'm at MTV. And at this point, you know, I'm doing, I'm on to MTV like every day. And, uh, John's visiting over there. You know, it had been a while since he had been, you know, working at MTV. And I'm walking down the hallway and I hear John go, hey, Matt, what's going on? And I go, hey, John, great to meet you. And he goes, great to meet me? You've known me for 15 years, Matt. It's John from City Gardens. I go, holy shit, Back Bar John. Because I used to call him <laughs> Back Bar John because he was always the best. I mean, I go, John will always slip me some free jokes, man. I know he will. And then if you like the band up front, like the Dead Kennedys or Black Flag, or he'd go up there and he'd mosh. So there's like one picture that exists of John Stewart John in a Stewart leather jacket. Boxing? Yeah, like, like you're doing like one of those like, you know, did you ever see that sick of it all video? Speaking of like New York bands, there was a video that my friend Marco Siega direct, directed where it's like all the dance moves for moshing and it's hilarious. And one of them is the pizza maker and the guy spinning around. <laughs> oh, it's great. <laughs> it was like, it's the funniest video. It's so cool. You guys have to I can't picture John Stewart doing that. Yeah, there's a great picture. a small guy. He's like, John's like this, like he's like getting really into it at the Dead Kennedy <laughs> show. And that's like the only one that exists of him at City Gardens. When you worked uh, A&R, who were you responsible for signing? Uh, a band called Coed and Cambria, if you know who they are. Yeah. Uh, Cambria, all right, they were uh, from New York State. Um, and while I was with them, they had two top 10 albums, one that entered the uh, Billboard charts at number three, one at number seven. I signed a band uh, uh, called Crossfade, who had a huge mainstream rock hit. I remember that. Cold, and that sold two and a half million copies. So I made that record. I gave them a new name. They, 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 I love the guys, but they had the worst name in the world. They were calling themselves Sugar Daddy Superstar. And I said, guys, that Ew. sounds like a, a transvestite disco band from the 1970s. <laughs> I go, you're, you're a rock band. You're a hard rock band. I go, you can't, I go that name's not going to wash. And Donnie Einer, who was the chairman of uh, Sony at the time, you know, I always worked over t under Tommy Mottola, and at that point, Tommy had left. But I remember uh, <laughs> their showcase, they came into play. And uh, Donnie walks up to him and goes, hey, guys, you're signed, but you got to do something about that name. Matt's going to help you find a name. He goes, because, uh, he, goes, let me, he goes, let me say four words to you. Toad the Wet Sprocket. And Toad were signed to Columbia. We were a great band, but sure. the name was never – you know, he just was basically saying, if you want to be taken seriously. And – you know, obviously, Toad the Wet Sprocket, like Ned's Atomic Dustbin, they got their names from Monty Python, you know what I right. mean? But, uh, you know, so that was the deal. But Crossfade, that record was huge. And um, I basically took some of the songs that they already had and, uh, and then, you know, helped them construct some other stuff. And it, it was, uh, that, that was a big record. I also, guys, I don't know, you guys wrestling fans at all? Huge, huge. So I was the guy who did the WWF albums, like Forcible Entry, the one with all the uh, wrestling. Okay. I loved you know, the one, all those albums. Yeah, like Marilyn, the one with Manson, Union Underground, like um, it had Limp Bizkit on it. It had a ton of, ton of uh, Rob Zombie. Uh, so that record I had, it went to number three. So I got my gold record 
with Vince McMahon, which was really cool. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that was great. So I was the guy, I was the, I was the guy for WWF, it was called that then, before it was switched to WWF. Sure. And I did, their, I did their records. Didn't you also have something to do with the Killers? Yeah, well, here's the deal with the Killers. So the Killers wrote that song about me, all these things that I've done, which is like one of their biggest songs ever. Um, and the thing, the story with the Killers was, and it's in my book, I didn't get to sign the Killers because Leo Cohen, you know, who used to be partners with Russell Simmons um, at Def Jam and Rick Rubin um, at that time was running Def Jam. And my friend Rob Stevenson did A&R over there. We were the two people, believe it or not, every other um, record label passed on the Killers, which is shocking, I know, because they're still mm -hmm. going and playing fucking stadiums. But I heard this, you know, I was actually signing a band from Manchester, England. I was on the Virgin Trains. And by the way, you ever go to Northern England and you're trying to get to London on time? Don't depend on the Virgin Trains. They're like notoriously late for everything. <laughs> so I was going down to see... Coed in Cambria, who I ended up signing. Oddly enough, I signed two bands off that trip from England because Coed were American, right? Guys were from New York, uh, New York, New Jersey, like Rockland County, that area. But um, the thing was, I knew there was going to be a feeding frenzy to sign them, and I was like, you know what? Fuck this. I'll go to. I'm going to England anyway to see this other band in Manchester that I'm going to sign. I'm going to go down and, and hang with the guys there, where it's not going to be like a clusterfuck. And so I get down there. But on the train ride down, there's this guy named Alex Gilbert, who's an A&R guy in England. And he's a super cool guy. And he um, plays me the demo. I goes, I got to eat Matt, have you ever heard this band of killers? I go, no. He goes, well, yeah, but somebody gave me this demo, this CD, and I burned it into my iPod. They gave me this demo at South by Southwest. Check this band out. So he put it on, and I heard Smile Like You Mean It and Mr. Brightside. And I went, I fucking have to sign this band, man. I got to get this band. So... I finally figure out they're from Vegas. I mean, I do all the search. I'm trying to figure out how to get in contact with them. At the end of it, it's between uh, me at Columbia and them at Def Jam. Uh, what, what ha what's, what's happening at the same time is I get an email from the U.S. Army. And the U.S. Army reaches out to me. They also called the office. At this point, I've been promoted to vice president already of ANR. You know, before that, I was senior director when I came in. And the reason I moved back to the East Coast was... You know, I had, a, I had a baby girl who was in a, a year and a half at that time. And, you know, I, I, I was in L.A. doing Farm Club with Jimmy Iovine, Dr. Dre, and all those guys. Remember that show? It had every hard rock and metal band. It. it had, like, hip-hop artists. It was awesome, Farm Club. I loved it. Yeah. But, you know, once uh, Universal, there, you know, once the, the dot-coms became dot-bombs and there was that big, uh, you know, the, the big the kind of crash at Silicon Valley, uh, Universal got cold feet and pulled out a, a large amount of our funding. And we were killing it. I mean, you know, there were, I was on the cover of the business section of the New York Times, a picture of me and Dr. Dre on stage. And we were selling more CDs than any other outlet, including MTV at that period of time. We were selling so many, because we had the wrestling lead in of Raw and War, and they were the highest rated. That was when they were the highest rated things on cable. Sure. So we had a 15 share lead in. So our show was like so highly rated and all, the people that loved rock or hip hop that were wrestling fans would stay and watch. You know what I mean? And uh, so we sold a, a lot of CDs back in that day. But when that ended, um, I, you know, I was going to try to figure out, well, what am I going to do next? And I'd always said that I wanted to do A&R. And I was talking to this guy, David Massey at Epic, who signed Oasis and a bunch of other people, pretty legendary English guy. Um, 
and he wanted to hire me over there, but it was the height of the boy bands. So the boss, Polly Anthony, is no longer with us. Really nice, really a nice woman. Um, she was, he was like, you know, I had dinner with her and she goes, well, if you had to sign a band like right now, what, who would it be? And I'd said Foo Fighters, right? So, because I'm, I'm, I'm meaning, I like guitar bands and I like rock. I mean, I like everything. I mean, I like synth, I mean, I, you know, there's a lot of different things I like. But I think she wanted to hear an answer like in sync. So David said to me, he goes, he goes, just give it a few months. He goes, I'll get this done. He goes, when a new uh, budget comes up, we'll get you hired. But then I found out my old boss, Andy Schoen, who hired me at MTV and gave me my break was was the GM for Farm Club and working for Jimmy Iovine. So they flew me out and they hired me to host and do other stuff. But when I when, when it was over, I wanted to stay in Southern California, man. I like the weather. I like being able to like walk my kid or, you know, take my kid out in a stroller like all year long. Don't get me yeah. wrong. I love, you know, I loved New York and New Jersey. I mean, I got a lot of history there, but I love the weather. I mean, the weather was, that's why I love it right here right now. It's sunny. And Speaking of great history in New York, don't you have a, a great David Bowie story where you had oh, to go yeah. over his house uh, to check oh. out some music. Yeah, and I'm going to just quickly finish the Killers thing so you know what, yeah, what yeah. the story was. Please. And why I named my book after it. You know, my book's called All These Things That I've Done. Um, and by the way, it got re-released uh, because Judd Apatow said that he loved the book and bought the book and he thought it was fucking great and loved the story. Mm -hmm. So that was fucking cool because all of a sudden, after that's on social media... My book appears magically on paperback again. Like it, like it came out in 2016, you know? And I, you, I, I did a lot of things to promote that, like Howard's after show. The only reason I couldn't go on Howard directly, Howard would have had me on, but, you know, you have to be in the studio with him. And I was living on the, everything was kind of hitting at the same time, me just moving to San Francisco. So I did the after show with Baba Bowie. And, uh, and then, you know, I, you know, I was on Opie's show on Sirius and with Bill Bernal's guys, and I was promoting... Promoting the book. Um, so the book was named after the killer song. And he, the story is because of the U.S. Army thing. U.S. Army calls me and they basically, I'll, I'll wrap it up for you in a, in a nutshell. They say to me, look, on MTV, you've got a lot of fans that, you know, loved you for your rock and roll passion. Um, we have a lot of soldiers returning from Afghanistan and Iraq. And some of them are wounded. Some of them are not. But we're putting on this big uh, event incentive weekend and we'd like to know if you would like to come and mentor the soldiers. Uh, we, you know, and come there and talk to them about music and give them advice and, you know, and, and, uh, do, and do this whole thing. So I literally, I, I told the U.S. Army, of course I would do it. So they flew me to Colorado City, Colorado. And there were, there's an army base there. And I, you know, and it was, it was amazing to be there with guys that had come back wounded, that loved rock and roll. I mean, you made me, re I realized how much, you know, these, Amazing young men and women had sacrificed themselves going over there. Um, and I was really grateful and proud to do it and, you know, and have the opportunity. And I really, I had a really great time with all the soldiers, you know. And, um, and so I did that and I was flying directly to Las Vegas to see the Killers play. And they were playing in their drummer's parents' garage. So I get there, their management picks me up, they drive me to the house and they are literally in a garage doing Mr. Brightside, Smile Like You Mean It, and all those hits from that first album. So uh, I really wanted to sign them. And I couldn't believe that there were actually record labels, like in England, that said they didn't have any songs. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? And um, so we have dinner that night. They're asking me about a bunch of people that they eventually either duetted with or got to know when it got really big. But they kind of wanted to know about all these bands I interviewed. And uh, 
I want to go back to my hotel after the dinner. And I ask anybody at the table want to drive me back to my hotel. And then Brandon Flowers, the singer, says, I'll do it, man. I'll take you back. We'd had a few drinks and we were getting his car. He puts on a Beatles cassette because at that point he couldn't even afford a car with a CD player. He was a bellboy. And we were driving down the strip singing Help the night before. And, I, and I, you got to hide your love away. Listen to Beatles, the cassette of Help. And we're singing top of our lungs. We get to the Las Vegas Hilton. There's a sidebar. There's like nothing but the bartender and the two of us. And then we, I start talking about, he, goes, he wants to know more about me. So we're talking about life. I was, my marriage was failing at the time. And I, I was being really honest with him. And he just got inspired to go home that night. And he wrote that song that was a huge hit for them. All these things that I've done. And the line, I got soul, but I'm not a soldier. That is that big bridge in that song is because of that mentoring I did with the soldiers in Iraq. Wow. That's right. So how did they slip through your fingers? Uh, you don't want to know how? Because my bosses, you know, who I, who I, you know, I was very fond of. My bosses, instead of like come, going after them aggressively, they were like, bring them in tomorrow. Because they had a big like, charity dinner with John Mayer and Beyonce the night, the night before. And they were coming in on the Friday. Lior Cohen found out. It was, it was between, we knew it was like really tight between us. Lior Cohen got a, got a lim, uh, you know, limo, picked them up and said, what do I have to do to be in the killer's business? And, you know, he just gave them a huge check. And they called me the next day and said, Matt, you know, we love you, but we signed with, uh, with Island Def Jam. And then there were people at the record label were like, how can you still talk to those guys? And I'm like, well, I'm in the K-Rock music department. See, so I used to also be a K-Rock and I would pick music, but I would never vote because of the ethics and because you can't do it for Plugola. I would never vote on a Columbia record. So I'd sit there and let the other people decide whether even my own records, they were worth playing on uh, K-Rock in New York. Cause you know, I was still doing K-Rock in New York for years um, right. and doing the buzz on that and you know, filling in and doing stuff. I mean, they wanted me to originally when they flipped to uh, alternative rock and modern rock, they wanted me to do five days a week but I didn't have the time working on MTV and MTV too. So I continued to work for K-Rock, but um, it was just, uh, you know, I look, I look back on that. And that was the deal. But that was it. I mean, Lear Cohen was really aggressive. And, and he was very smart. Great record company president. The difference is that the president and the chairman of a company, that's what he was. They, he can write a check. And I was, compared to a chairman, I'm a, I was a lowly vice president. <laughs> so, so, you know. But so, I have a great friendship. And people, like I said, they ask me, why are you still friends with the killers? I'm like, because I have two different hats, man. And, I, and I'm a music lover. I'm not taking it personally, you know. Bridges. Yes. Yeah, so right. we still have an incredible friendship. After I got hit by the car and I was killed out here, and I got out of the hospital, I was on a walker at the Chris Cornell tribute concert. I was on a walker at the Alt Alter Ego iHeart show. The Killers were headlining with Muse and uh, Weezer, and the Killers dedicated that song to me that night on stage. Oh wow! And they wanted to see the pictures of my head torn open because there is a picture that exists. That even TMZ like blurred out, but it's like for people with with like with with, with uh, gentle stomachs, you you don't want to see that photo of my I've, head. I've seen the picture. That yeah, was, it's pretty amazing. That was gnarly. That was like that gnarly, gnarly picture. Gnarly. <laughs> yeah, that picture is unbelievable. TMZ blurred it out. You know, TMZ likes me. Like they've never said talked shit ever. Um, they always say nice things because you know they're like he's not an asshole. So you know what I mean. So when they when they when they reported on it, TMZ like it, they broke it and then it went everywhere. Um, but I was lucky to be alive, you know, after flying through yeah. the air fifteen feet, Oof. head going through the windshield, leg broken in half. 
But um, anyway, so that was the, the, the situation with the killers. And you'd asked about David Bowie, and that was- Yeah, because you get a phone call. I think this is amazing. This was in the book, I believe. Yeah. yeah. You get a phone call that David Bowie wants you to come over his house, okay, yeah. to listen to tracks of a new album. First of all, what do you do when David Bowie calls? What do you bring? Do you, do you, do you bring flowers? Do you bring out? <laughs> what do you bring when, when how do yeah. you draw? I have a million, because I love Bowie. I see you have a, a Bowie, I don't know, a book or you something. Know, I, I, do. I, I absolutely love Bowie. To go, were you nervous? A million questions about this. Well, I, I'll tell you, it, it kind of starts, there's a whole chapter in the book about that as well. And, you know, because like I said, it was just re-released on paperback, thanks to Judd Apatow's comments uh, about it. And, um, you know, because it was originally released in September 2016. But, it, you know, it's, it's, it's still relevant in every way. And, and, you know, so the Bowie chapters, Bowie was one of my heroes like you, Jeff, as a kid. Loved Bowie. I saw him at the Nassau Coliseum in 1976. Uh, my... Do you have a favorite Bowie song? Oh, I have so many. You know what I mean? But I always go back to the one that I sang in bands when I was a kid, and that was Rebel Rebel. And that's, mm -hmm. I don't know if it's my favorite, but it's one of my favorites. I mean, it's I a happy go song. With, huh? It's a happy song. You can't hear that song and not just start bouncing your freaking head. Yeah, because that riff is so great, you know? And I, I, I mean, you know, I, and I love those albums, that run of albums. Like, I got to go with Young Americans. Yeah, Young Americans is a great song, man. I love that, you know? So good. Yeah, I just love... He was just interesting, you know, and as I sat on his couch, we sat on the- wait, 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 before you go to his couch, you're walking, what, right. what I'm did gonna you wear and what did you bring? All right, let me tell you how it started, okay? It started when I became a part of the MTV Music Department, they were like, hey, we're having dinner with David Bowie tonight at the Brook, at the um, Bowery Bar, as opposed to the Bowery Ballroom, which was a restaurant too, you know, a bar. And they took out Virgin Records. He was on Virgin at the time through EMI Worldwide. And they rented and they took out like this giant room, you know, so people from the record label and all the MTV people and presidents and bosses. And uh, they decide they're going to, I meet him for the first time that night. And, you know, I saw him on Broadway and Elephant Man. I mean, I was a huge fan. I would go to New York City to like Golden Discs and Bleaker Bobs when I was young and you know, before there was any internet and look for B-sides and singles because I was so, you know, I loved yeah, you, had, you would find a lot of those great covers that he would wind up doing, these weird covers that you never expected. But like Bowie did a cover of Alabama song. Yeah, right, exactly. Like all that stuff. It's so cool. And, you know, so I met him for the first time that night and that picture exists of me and him meeting for the first time. And it's a great photo. Um, and we, here's the thing, it was really crazy. So I'm pretty, you know, at this point, I've been in the music department a couple months. So, but, you know, they put me right in front of him and Iman at the table with all my bosses. So the chairman, uh, which is uh, Tom Freston, you know, um, you know uh, Judy McGrath, who's the president of MTV, Andy Schoen, who's my boss, the head of music and programming and talent. And we're all around him and I'm thinking, holy shit, this better, I hope this goes well, man. So I'm pounding some Jack and Cokes to get a little loose, you know what I mean, at that period of time. And then we just started talking, and he was fascinated with the fact that I knew so much about his stuff, and he loved talking about it. We talked about Mick Ronson. We talked about, you know, all these different things. And then Patty Galuzzi, who was, one of, who was like the immediate boss of that department, she goes to Amon, she goes, hey, Amon, do you know as much about David's music as Matt does? She goes, I don't know if that's possible. <laughs> it was so funny. <laughs> And we're sitting there and then Bowie quietly goes to me, he goes, hey, listen, man, I'm gonna tell you something nobody knows yet. 
but I'm going out on tour with Trent and Nine Inch Nails. He goes, but I'm not going to do any of my singles. He goes, would you help me with the set list? Would you give me some ideas? He goes, I love your, your opinion on what tracks I should do. And I, of course, it was really, I said, for what I write, went, did right away, I said, well, all the current bands that have done songs, I go, obviously, Minnesota, The World, Nirvana. I said. Was this the, one, was the album with uh, Little Wonder? Was that the album that was coming out? What's that? Is, it the, is this the album that he was putting together with the song Little Wonder no, on it? this was Heathen. Which oh, was okay, sure, yeah. The one where he covers Cactus by the Pixies and Slow Burn. But the story is incredible because um, this is much earlier than that. So this is like in 95 when I was in the music department. I started in the music department at the beginning of 95. And so, but I've been doing MTV shows since 93. You know what I mean? A little earlier. So, and, and I've been on a channel even before that in 92. So it was, we're sitting there and I, I'm, I'm giving him some, some ideas off the top of my head. I go, Pumpkin, Smashing Pumpkins did Moon Age Daydream. STP did Andy Warhol. So I'm going through these songs and giving them a list. And then I go, I go, hey, um, you know what, man, do you have like, a, at that point, I'm like, do you have a fax number or an email? Or, or, and he goes, he goes, tell you what, I'll give you my phone number. So he gives me his phone number on a piece of paper and Stephen Hill, who ended up being hired the same day I did, but ran BET for years, he knew I was had a few cocktails, so he took the number so I wouldn't lose it. <laughs> so that's great. And then I went up to the rehearsals with him and Trent in Connecticut, you know. And um, so, and then I would go see him. And I remember the craziest thing: I'd be with Tom Fress, and we go to Radio City Music Hall to see him. And David would come off stage and go to me, "Hey Matt, was it good tonight? Was the show great?" I'm thinking, like, "You're asking me if you're fucking good? <laughs> you're David <laughs> Bowie, man. <laughs> of course you're good. You're phenomenal." I didn't say that, but I was like, yeah, David, it was a great show. All right, so time goes by. We were in touch, 95, 96, 97. Same time I became friends with Lou Reed. You know what I mean? Like Lou was emailing back and forth with me and Lou came in and he couldn't believe that a guy was doing the show 120 minutes who knew all that shit about the Velvet Underground and about his albums. So that was another friendship that I struck up during that period. And, um, but Bowie, so it's a little while. So this time goes by, a few years. And I'm doing a and &R. I start doing a and &R 2001 at Columbia. I'm there, pretty, it's pretty new, you know. First guy took me out to lunch was Peter Asher, the guy who was in Peter and Gordon, you know. His sister dated Paul McCartney, Jane Asher. And, you know, he produced all those Linda Ronstadt, James Taylor albums and all that stuff. And he was so nice. He was like, took me out the first time I played him some demos that I had brought in with me with some artists. And, uh, but people were, you know, getting in touch and I had, struck up a friendship like with Tony Visconti, you know, the D David Bowie producer, produced T-Rex too. And I, all of a sudden I get a call in my office. Tony's like, Matt, how you doing, man? I'm really happy about your new gig. And this is after 9-11 guys, because this is, I mean, you know, I don't know, you know, the, the other side of the story is I moved two blocks from ground zero 10 days before 9-11. Wow. So that was insanity. And I moved down there on John street because I had a relocation apartment. I was coming from LA. I'm like, fuck, these apartments in New York City are so damn small. What am I going to do? I rented a house in like Sherman Oaks here for like less than an apartment in New York City up back then. It had a indoor-outdoor uh, grill, a guest house with its own fences around it, a giant built-in pool, marble stairs <laughs> for like, you know, like a thousand less than what I was actually paying for an apartment in New York City with like a little two bedroom. So um, I moved down by, by the grounds, I moved down by the financial district, by, uh, by the World Trade Center because um, the apartments are a little bigger down there. 
And 10 days later, we're no longer there. You know what I mean? We, we evacuated my daughter. The miracle there was that she had an earache the night before because she was, would have been in that Battery Park daycare. She had just started mm. there where the parents didn't know their kids were alive or dead for eight hours. I would have had a heart attack. Can you imagine? No, were, I don't. I would have lost my shit worrying about my, my, my little girl. Of course. Um, and those women were incredible that worked there. They put those, all those kids on a boat for Jersey City and saved every one of those kids' lives. And if you'd seen what that Battery Park daycare looked like under the rubble, you would have thought nobody survived or, you know, or somebody would have been injured or killed there. Anyway, we're going back to the Bowie thing. So shortly after that, we have a relocation apartment on 8th and 50th Street in New York City. Um, because we go to Jersey, I kept my SUV in like on 2nd and 38th where the relocation apartment was. My wife at the time was like, hey, why don't you bring the car down here? I'm like, what are you talking about? $400 to park a car a month? That's two weeks already. For, you know what? I'm not bringing it down here paying another $400. We'll take a cab dude if we need to take it out of the city. And so... Um, Luckily, I left it up there because the people down near that other area who didn't get any of their cars out if they weren't destroyed. You know what I mean? They were like buried yeah. underground. Uh, so we were able to get out of the city that night and go back to Jersey, where I'm from and where I'm familiar with the, with the terrain. I was like, in case it was the apocalypse and the end of the world, I wanted to know everything about the geography, which I did down there. But my kid had an earache the night before, and then she didn't have an earache the next day. And I'm like, wow, there's some divine intervention. <laughs> Thank God she wasn't in that daycare because I was going to take her to the doctor the next day. Anyway, um, so then I moved. So I'm in the 8th and 50th year. I get a call from Tony Visconti, Bowie's producer. And he's like, Matt, I'd really like you um, to come see this artist, Christine Young. And it happened to be Tony's new girlfriend. All right. And Tony is legendarily connected to the Beatles two ways with his two wives. And it's a crazy story. Tony Visconti, the great record producer, his first wife was Mary Hopkin. Remember that? She was on Apple Records. She sang that song, Those Were the Days. Yeah, that, yeah. That was Tony's first wife. His second wife was Mae Pang. You know, the famous Lost yeah. Weekend of John yeah. Lennon. She was, um, so he married May, And that was, so he was connected to the Beatles through John and Paul. Um, with his two wives. Wow. And so that's when CBGB's gallery existed. So, you know, they would have CBs for the like full on rock and, you know, punk and whatever was playing there, bunk, metal. Uh, and then you would have CBGB's gallery for some of the like mellower shows or just people that, you know, were, were starting out. So I'm, I'm you know, I'm, uh, I'm sitting down there by myself. I, t I took a cab down and I feel a tap on my shoulder. And I'm watching Christine, and he goes, and he, and it's David Bowie, and he goes, and right about that time, the heads of his company, Ken and Nancy Berry, were were ousted over this really incredible, uh, like controversy that, you know, she, she was notorious supposedly, and I don't want to say this, but this is just a rumor, so I I don't know this to be fact, but for sleeping with a lot of the artists, <laughs> not David, but you know what I mean, some of the other people. And there was this crazy thing that happened. I can't believe that would actually happen in uh, music. <laughs> yeah, right. Wow. So, <laughs> that seems so far-fetched. So the crazy thing was, there was a new artist who had one hit, you might remember here on K-Rock, uh, called Hey, Mi hey, hey Mister. It was by a guy called Custom, who was an artist that was signed there. One hit wonder, one nearly hit wonder guy, but, you know, a no, you know, uh, she took a liking to him. And supposedly got really drunk one night and was leaving voice messages on his machine saying she was going to ruin him 
and all this other stuff because she fell in love with him and he was like, uh, I thought we were just fucking around, right? So, so anyway, he um, ends up taking those voicemails and making a song out of them. He takes the voicemails and puts them over like some music and then sends them to the heads of EMI that are up above over her. Right, right. And so then her, her and her husband, Ken, who had been like, you know, running EMI, which basically is, you know, the English, I mean, it was like the English capital. I mean, EMI was over capital, Virgin, all that stuff. They were ousted. So David Bowie had a key man clause that he could get out. If Ken Berry left the company, he was no longer bound to them by a contract. So, wow. right, so Bowie taps me on the shoulder and goes, hey, Matt, how you doing? I, go, I look at him, I go, David, you know, I was going through my storage when I lost my apartment back in Jersey and I found the Diamond Dog sheet music book. And I always thought, you know, I never asked artists to sign anything, but I would have uh, loved that you sign that. And he goes, Matt, I'll sign anything. He goes, what are you doing right now? And I go, oh, I was just gonna go back to my wife and kid. They're, we're up on the Long Acre House on 8th and, and, and 50th. And it was, I was in this building with Riza. You know what I mean? It was cool. Riza mm-hmm. and I both go to this, we go to this uh, little, little Thai restaurant. It was like around under it, you know? And when I ran into him, at Kaboo Festival City. He goes, remember we go to that Thai restaurant, man? I go, yeah, that's, you know. So it was cool to see him. And speaking of Staten Island, Wu-Tang. But um, so Bowie goes like this to me. He goes, why don't you come have dinner with me? And I'm like, okay. I'm like, sure, of course. So I get in the back of a town car that says Bowie won on the license plate. It's his driver. And we drive from CBGB's gallery on the Bowery corner Barry and Bleecker and we drive to Little Italy and it's like his favorite restaurant we go through the back into this garden it's still you know it's still pretty much the fall it's like October so it's not really you know it hasn't been that long since 9-11 um and so it's me and him Tony Visconti and Christine Young and Coco David Bowie's assistant and we're all having dinner and David said Matt I insist you because Matt you got to tell me your your 9-11 story so we're I'm here having dinner with Bowie and then me and me and Tony Biscotti were talking about Mark Ball and a T-Rex and how Tony used to go in when Mark would write a song and then he'd lay all those strings all over it that had all the really cool, edit all those really cool sounds of those T-Rex records. So Bowie goes to me, he goes, Matt, he goes, um, well, man, right. well, this is all happening. This is all happening. Does it seem surreal to you? You know, uh, you know what? I, at this point I've interviewed so many people like Page and Plant, like a, you know, it was surreal in a way because, but I didn't, at the time, I just kind of went with it. You know what I mean? Now looking back, it's more surreal than ever. But I mean, the thing that's wild about it, you know, especially now that he's not with us anymore. And I love right. him. But, um, and he was charming and he was very kind to me. Uh, and, you know, so he, um, we're having dinner and we're telling stories. And then he's like, I'm going to have you uh, come into the studio. I'm working on this record. I'd love to play it for you all the way through. So he's working at Philip Glass's studio there. Um, which is right there by, by Canal and Bowery. And I go down and I meet Bo, David and we're sitting in this like little room, this lounge, and he's like, at that moment, he found out from Interpol, not the band, of course, the uh, organization, the policing organization, that somebody was selling his old outfits from the Aladdin Sane tour from the Ziggy years uh, on eBay. And someone stole them off the stage in Portugal. And he was like, so happy he'd gotten them back. He goes, you know what? He goes, usually stuff like that on the bottom. He goes, but that belonged to me. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy I'm getting them back. So he got them back. We sat and we listened to the original version of the album, Heathen. 
Mick Rock came in, speaking of like legendary photographers who took all those pictures of Bowie back then, Sid Barrett, Lou Reed, Iggy, you know, all those great pictures. Mickey, so it was kind of a reunion. Tony, Mick, David, you know, and I'm here for this thing. I'm, I'm, I'm along for the ride. We listened to the record and the story is great. So, you know, I thank him and all of a sudden here I am, I'm back at the office one day and I have Steve Thompson. I love, Steve Thompson became a great friend of mine. Produced and mixed a lot of records. Mixed uh, was one of the co-mixers on Appetite for Destruction, one of, one of the greatest albums of all time. And so I wanted Steve to produce this band that I got a demo deal for, which was like the first thing. So he's over at the Hit Factory, which is this legendary, you know, it no longer exists, but it's a legendary New York studio. And it's really ironic that the day I walked in there, Luther Vandross is sitting in the lobby. And I always wanted to ask- Who sang on Young Americans. Right, right, he sang on Young Americans. So I always wanted to ask him, hey Luther, man, you know, uh, Matt, Matt Pimpley goes, I know you are. I've, I've seen on TV. How you doing? And I go, you know, I always wanted to ask you, you released a version of Fascination from Young Americans. And Bowie, or, or no, you released, but your version was called Funky Music is a Part of Me. I go, why was it different? And he goes, you know what? He goes, David thought it was too presumptuous to say Funky Music is a Part of Me. He said, so he changed it to Fascination. So that was mm -hmm. the deal. Bowie didn't want to be like, all right. He was already calling it Plastic Soul, even though it was genius. Young American Station to Station, that, those albums were so great. Um, that, you know, that was what he said. All right, so, you know, so Bowie's already on my mind, but, you know, I've, I'm in there because I'm sitting there and speaking of Staten Island again, so he, Steve is mixing the Wu-Tang Clan Iron Flag album. And I go into the back studio and my cell phone rings <laughs> and I step over and I answer it. It says, no, you know, caller ID or whatever. And he goes, Matt. I go, yeah. He goes, David Bowie. And I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> Call myself phone. He goes, Matt, what are you doing to, uh, on Wednesday? And I say the dumbest thing because, you know, we, I'm part of, once you're a senior director, you can, you're in the label Wednesday meeting at noon. They buy you lunch. And everybody goes over their projects and what's going on in marketing, what's going on in sales. And I actually say to David Bowie, I go, um, well, you know, Wednesday, I've got my label meeting. So, um, and I think after the phone call, I go, did I really just say to David Bowie, I got a fucking label meeting? You know what I mean? I mean, what Wait, the fuck? So you blow go, off Bowie? Throw, if Wednesday's the only day he wants to see me, I'm going to fucking blow him off for a fucking yeah, for a stupid meeting? meeting? Yeah, so uh, he goes, well, and he's such a kind guy. He goes, I'll tell you what, man. He goes, what are you doing Thursday or Friday afternoon? I go, um... Yeah, I mean, I'll be available, David. Uh, you know, um, what's good for you? He goes, what? I'll tell you what. He goes, I'm going to email you, and uh, I'm going to tell you which days works. And he goes, if you want to, you know, I'll send a driver to come bring you to the, my house. So I go, and I go up this, like, really cool staircase. Um, and it was the most, that is the most surreal thing I look back on, because. You went over David, David Bowie's house. I'm at David Bowie's house. Ah. We're on couches sitting across from each other. He wanted ideas originally for like some remixers and some things to do with some songs on the album. So I wanted to play it for me again. Coco's sitting in the corner taking notes. She'd been his assistant since Aladdin Sane. Um, and, and Coco was really cool. And you know, David was, and he just said to me, he goes, Matt, you know, I really love and appreciate your knowledge and your, your like openness to, you know, open, uh, how open you are to music. And 
he gave me this unbelievable compliment. And I looked at him, I said, David, well, you know, that's really, you're, you're responsible for that all. Because when I discovered your music, I knew there was a whole nother universe out there of, of music that I, could, that I could explore. And it changed my trajectory and my direction. I go, so that was, that was you. So many, I mean, it's amazing getting a compliment like that. A guy oh telling God. you how much he, he respects you and, 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 and loves your knowledge. And, and, uh, and so we listened to the whole album. And Coco goes, hey, David, I think you should play Mac those other five songs. And he goes, oh, I don't really know. I go, David, you got to play them for me. So, like, I literally, I can't believe, you know, I, you would think I'd be there, like, going, like, twiddling my thumbs and being, like, you know, super, like, but no, I wasn't. I was pretty. Are you just sitting there or are you walking around? He's walking around after this. This is really funny. So we're sitting there. And she goes, he goes, okay, you can play them uh, for Mac. And so he's starting to think and, First thing he plays, she plays is Waiting for You, which is the Neil Young cover, which ended up on Heathen. It wasn't on Heathen originally. And so I go, David, you got to put this on the album. This is great, man. <laughs> and he, goes, he gets up and he starts to pace and smoke a cigarette and go in and out of the balcony, like out to the garden uh, out there over New York City in that area down there by like, you know, like Fourth and Broadway and all that area. And he's, uh, and it's funny because then he played, he played another song, Slow Burn. And he goes, what do you think of this? And I go, you got to put it on the album. <laughs> so then it's another track. I tell him you got to put it on the album. And he starts to think, he starts getting a, like, a, he starts smoking, pacing back and forth. And, um, and then he plays, uh, everybody says hi. Says hi. Um, and he goes, now what do you think of this one? I go, Dave, this is great. It's really hard to leave this off the album. So he's like. He's you're going to make this a triple album. Yeah, and he's saying he's getting a second guess. And then he goes to the fourth track and he goes like this. He goes, All right, Mo, what do you think of this one? I go, eh. I go, B-side soundtrack. And he goes like this. And he like, you know, like put, rubs, rubs his hand across this thing. It was the funniest, coolest thing ever. And it was like, um, sure enough, I'm not going to say I won't take full credit by any means, but I certainly got him thinking. He put those three songs on the album and switched them out for other songs for B-sides. Did he thank you on the liner notes? No, he didn't actually. But you know, David has never done that. You don't look if you look at any of his records. That's you know, he doesn't even give A and R credit on any of his records. But I basically A and R the record secretly. He, he told me to do. He goes, Matt, this is on the download. This is on the DL." And I mean, literally said that. And um, so it was great just to have done it. It was brilliant, you know, for me. And then ironically, he signs the Columbia Records. But he's on day on David's level. He's dealing directly with the president. You know what I mean? So. But I mean, I, he's the kind of guy, you know, he, he takes full control over stuff, but uh, I got him thinking, changed the songs, got a Grammy nomination for uh, Slow Burn, which he wow. wasn't, yeah. Um, I don't know whether he won it or not, but he definitely got nominated. I can't remember uh, exactly, but it was brilliant. And you know, I'm there, I'm there the whole afternoon into the evening and then, uh, which is, I'm, I'm there with my hero, right? And then as I'm leaving, he says to me, he goes, you know, Matt, he goes, I know you're friends with Scott Weiland. And he goes, uh, I know he's been struggling, you know, if you want, he goes, let him know that he can call me anytime he wants to talk about, you know, those kind of struggles, which was a beautiful thing to say. Got in the car and went back to New Jersey. It was absolutely, in his, in, in, in retrospect, it's surreal, but it was unbelievable. And I was just like being myself the whole time. And, and I, I think what's so great about it is that he changed the, changed the tracks on the album. He took the one out about Uncle Floyd, made it a B-side, 
which I thought those songs were better than that song anyway. And there were a couple other things he switched out. Like there was a second version of the song Sunday. There were two versions of the song. There was a reprise. So he took that out. He took the, he took the, this song about Uncle Floyd out and one other, and he switched them out for those three songs. Is that unbelievable? So that, that whole thing is unbelievable. I've always uh, been a, I've always been a fan of Bowie. One of the most ex- really just amazing experiences I ever went to is the uh, the museum exhibit in Brooklyn. You know, it's amazing. I did this concert last night with Bush. You know, it was the first of its kind. This thing called Fan Tracks. It's a virtual concert. You can like the crowd can hear each other. And the band count on the sound stage. And they Where, where's the band, band performing? They were we were doing it on a sound stage in Burbank. All no, right? pe- no people in the audience. No people but us, the crew. It's like it's I, the crew. I did the whole pre-show, which was very cool. I showed some of their videos. I rolled in interviews I did with Gavin and then with the whole band, Gavin and Rossdale. And then I did an after show after the concert where we took people's questions and he answered fans' questions. And it was incredible. You know, for the first time of doing anything like that, we had almost 200,000 people watching. Um, people loved it, and it was a great experience. So it was awesome to do this thing with fan tracks. And, you know, six degrees of separation. Um, and by the way, my old co-host on my morning show in New York City at RxP, Leslie Fran was joking with Kevin Bacon when he was in. She goes, you know, hey, maybe you have six degrees of separation, but Matt's got two degrees. People who know him or people who know someone who knows him. And he goes, yeah, you're probably mm-hmm. right. But it was pretty fucking funny. But... Yeah, so um, it was great last night. It's like a new technology thing, you know? And I mean, look, for me, it's like, I was so grateful to be asked. And the six, the six degrees of separation is that the guy who produced it, and one of the guys that worked there, grew up 10 miles from me in North Brunswick, New Jersey. I was from East Brunswick. We had mutual friends. Guy came up to me at the Kaboo Festival that I hosted that broadcast um, last year. Like I did a couple of really cool things before last year, two festivals. And the best was I got to do Rock in Rio. I, they flew me to Rio and I hosted seven nights of streams for every country except for Brazil. So that was, it was amazing. It was like Muse, Iron Maiden, Foo Fighters, you know? I mean, it was like yeah, Dave Matthews. It was so diverse. Even Drake, you know what I mean? And Pink. I mean, it was so, there were so many different people on that bill, but it was so much fun. I hosted for seven nights. I have this incredible picture. Like if you go to my, uh, you know, profile picture on Facebook or Instagram, there's a photo of me on stage with my back to the crowd of 150,000 people because that's how many attended every night. It was one of the most, a beautiful moment. And the producer of those shows said to me, right before the last night, he goes, Matt, I think you should zip line over the crowd. And I go, because there were all these like extreme sports guys zip lining over the fucking crowd of 150,000 people. And I'm looking up there, oh, that's nice. And, uh, I look at him, I go, well, maybe. He goes, no pressure, no pressure. And sure enough, I stood on my balcony when I got home that night, and I looked, or back to the hotel. I looked at the ocean on the right, the mountains on the left, and I said, you know what? I may never get this chance again, so fuck it. I'm going to do it. So I got up, and uh, they filmed the whole thing, and I ziplined across that crowd of 150,000 people. Jesus. It was mind-blowing, man. And, you know, they were filming me. When I got up there, they had a camera there, one on the ground, one where, where I come in on the other side. And uh, the one guy goes, Matt, how you feeling up here? I go, scared shitless. Because <laughs> I was, it was like, all the way up, I looked in, in, I looked like, I didn't look out over the crowd. I like, I'm going up that thing that's like 700 feet high or whatever it is. And uh, maybe higher. And uh, yeah, it was, a, it was an incredible experience. And, you know, that's, I hold on to that right now while we're not allowed to go, we can't go and see concerts, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, I miss that. 
Matt, I was supposed was to be at Guns N' Roses last night. Me too. Yeah, Matt, man. Was there anybody that you saw as an A&R guy and got it wrong where you said, nah, they're not, they're not that good. They're not going to make it. And they wind up blowing up. No, there was not, none like that. Actually. I mean, I, I, you know, I wish I could tell you there was, but there wasn't, I mean, there were people that other people signed that I, I thought were really, really good. And, you know, like the used and, you know, people like that, that, that uh, but signed with other people. Um, I remember taking, you know, it's really funny. I remember, and then bands would want to sign with us, but because of the deals were too rich from their management, you know, we didn't sign them. But, you know, a young kid who later on went by the name of Skrillex was in a band mm -hmm. called From First to Last. Now, Skrillex, I took him out for his 18th birthday. There was this, my favorite restaurant in New York City because it was so old school. There's pictures of Sinatra there and all these other people right next to the Chelsea Hotel. It was there for 88 years. Oh, it's on 23rd Street. Yeah, yeah, Quixote, yeah. you know that place? It's yeah, yeah, because, uh, you know, um, I perform at Gotham. It's right down the block. Yeah, right, you do. And I would always walk yeah. by Gotham all the time and sometimes go to shows there. So, yeah, I loved El Quixote, and I would take every band there that I was courting. Uh, and just in general, I would eat there. We would eat there all the time. And, uh, you know, with my assistant is now the global head of rock for Spotify, Allison Hagendorf. You know, she was on Fuse, and, and she's like my sister. And... Um, you know, uh, it's, we would go there and eat all the time and just, and just, I love that place. Even after I rode 50 miles on a bicycle for a charity in New York City called Road Recovery, one day I went there with my girlfriend at the time, right after, threw my Cannondale bike in the back of her SUV, went right to El Quixote. So that place, when that closed, it was, I said to myself, I go, another reason to be pissed off about New York right now. And I love New York, but um, you know what I'm saying? I just... It's one of those things where they, you know, these, you know, it's like any city, you know, things are so transient in the sense that it had to kill you when uh, Bleaker Bob's closed and became a sushi restaurant. Yeah, Bleaker Bob's, CB's, you know, but I mean, Hilly didn't really, they were all like doing that save CB's thing. And Hilly didn't really want it, you know, really, Hilly wanted to get rid of it at that period of time, which people, you know, don't realize. But I will say that I loved hosting the three CBGB's festivals for three years, 2000. 12, 13, 14, I hosted and did keynotes with like Chris Novoselic from uh, Nirvana. Um, and I, you know, Duff played there with Duff McKinnon's solo band, Jane's Addiction, Devo. We did these concerts and closed down Times Square, like, you know, like on, on Broadway. Um, and then we would have to break when they had the matinees on a Sunday, but we, we threw these concerts after the initial stuff. So they had me host those for three years while they were doing it. And then when the, all the principals couldn't agree on it anymore, somebody had the bright idea of putting a CBGB's cafe in Newark Airport. Newark Airport. And you wouldn't eat CBGB's <laughs> if you fucking somebody paid you a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> not alone, not let alone use the toilet, the famous toilet. Which is the I always, I've been, I've been saying now, if if the CBGB's toilet was still around, everybody could just go there and lick it, and you'd be completely cured of coronavirus. <laughs> I was going to say that. You know, I was going to say that. Yeah, because whatever whatever existed there would kill anything inside your body if it didn't kill you. So it was unbelievable. You know, it's one of those things where people used to always say to me, there's guys would go in there and go, hey, dude, anywhere we can do some lines of Coke? And I'm like, dude, I got a, a, some suggestion for you. Um, if Coke makes you take a dump, I don't think you want to do that right here. <laughs> you're going to have to go downstairs. And that toilet, you're going to get scared. Believe me, my friend, you don't want to do cocaine here at CBGB. It was very strange going to see an actual show there after they yeah. closed CBGBs because I got to go to uh, one of my favorite bands, the Gaslight Anthem. And I got oh, to go one to of mine. 
let's go to their record release party there and it was just very very strange seeing like knowing that you've been i grew up going to cbgb's going there knowing the history knowing all the, the sure the was it at there. the st- at the store yeah varvado's store they actually cleared uh, I, out like the the clothing and stuff and i believe if i remember correctly they still have the walls they do, they do. and they wheel the them out walls. and pull them outside you know John was on my uh, my other podcast. Well, it's not really a podcast. I, I guess it is, but it, it's more like a streaming show I do called In a Lonely Place that I started doing during COVID for Music Cares. And he was on it the other Did day. Did you get that name from the Smithereens? Yes, absolutely, from the Smithereens song. You know, because I love those guys. Love the Smithereens, yeah. Yeah, so great. And they've been my friends for years. I was friends with Pat. And, you know, I saw those guys, the first show I ever saw them do was in 1981, 82, at Rutgers, they, they played my college benefit, my first ever WRSU. Oh, wow. They were, the, they were the band. And all they had out was a little single at the time, a Girls About Town single. So and, underrated. Yeah, yeah great. So, so great. So I named it after that song because I love them. I oh, love that. Movie. Love that. Humphrey Bogart movie, you know, uh, from 1950. That's where Pat... Such, such a cool mood song, too, right? Yeah. yeah it's, a, it's almost like a sexy song. It is. I love it, man. And, I, and I'm, you know, I was sad when Pat died. It really was, you know? But I stay in touch with Jimmy Babjack, you know, and Dennis, uh, the guitar Didn't player. Didn't Marshall Crenshaw uh, sing with them for a little bit? Yeah, two, two guys, actually. Uh, one of the guys, uh, the singer of uh, the Jim Blossoms and Marshall mm-hmm. Crenshaw. Oh, both. wow. That's a, that's a great fit. That's a great fit. It is. Those guys both took over for Pat and have been touring. And I've been in touch with Jimmy, you know, through social media. You know, you know it's number two, but... Um, you know, during the COVID and everything. And, you know, I love the Smithereens. You know, I'm proud of all those great Jersey bands, Gaslight Anthem. You know, even even like those emo bands like Midtown. I signed Midtown, you know, who were, uh, you know, and funny because that, that label drive through, you know, the, the uh, like, which was yeah. a big emo label. Uh, Richard and Stephanie, I've known since they were 13 and 14 years old, come taking a bus to go to my friend Judy's record store, which actually used to be, Jimmy and Dennis's record store from the Smithereens before they took out, off. Because she oh, had wow. another store nearby called Music in a Different Kitchen. And then she, you know, they go, they because their rent was high and they were, they were selling more t-shirts. So they were like, and, and they had a video store called Captain Video. So they asked her if she wanted to come in there and split the thing and it would be better for both of them. And then Blood and Roses took off and that was the end of it. Those guys were on the road and the rest was history. So um, yeah, I mean, it's so Richard and Stephanie would come in. You know, so it's so crazy, you know, the whole history there, you know, and you got the My Chemical Romance guys from Belleville. Uh, yeah, Jersey um, guys. Oh, and I love Gaslight Anthem, you know, and I, I went to see Brian Fallon do an acoustic show out here at the Hotel Cafe, and I've always been cool with them. I had him come on and play American Slang and 59 Sound when I was doing mornings on that station, RXB in New York, always supporting the, you know, the Jersey, my Jersey brothers. Do you and think you know, he's handed over? Do you think Bruce has handed over the torch to Brian Fallon at this point? I think. Well, I, I think Bruce, Bruce Bruce isn't ready to hand over the torch to anybody. But I think that what he has done is he loves and respects him. Bruce, you know, Bruce definitely cares about him. Did you ever see that performance they did together of No Surrender? It's live. I have and I cried watching it. It was beautiful. And I, you know, what I mean is, I'm just saying Bruce is not going to give up. Bruce will be fucking Bruce. And do you playing. see what Bruce looks like now? Yeah. He looks tremendous. He's oh, he at the gym every day. He's 70 years old. He's in better shape than all of us. Hey, let me tell you, you know what's amazing? When he did the one tour, uh, and I went to one of the giant stadium shows. Remember when he was like hanging himself upside down from his mic stand? Yeah. Nailed into the ground? That <laughs> was great. And you know, I love Bruce so much. Bruce, when I left the Jersey Shore, that radio station, HTG, 
I'll never forget my last show because I, I stayed on the air for eight hours, you know? Because I, I'll tell you guys, I never expected to be on the radio again, let alone be on MTV regularly. And I didn't want to go into MTV in the music department and make them think that I had a hidden agenda to be on television. So I was very, very, it just happened very organically. But when I left that day and went back to my apartment in central Jersey, where I lived with my, my uh, first ex-wife at the time, right? um, I... Uh, remember being home by myself and sitting at the kitchen table and feeling like something died, somebody died, because I was like, wow, I'm not going to be doing the radio shows anymore, but I have this great opportunity. I'm going to be in the music department at MTV, and MTV was still breaking bands. It was phenomenal. And even though I had already done shows there, I didn't want them to think that that was my agenda. So, Is that what people know you most from, you think, uh, from oh, 120 minutes? 100%, 100%. But there are people that know me from radio, too, but there were a lot of people that knew me from MTV. Um, and what was really, um, you know, like go, going back to the Bruce thing, I'll just tell you quickly was, you know, Bruce would come to the Christmas shows that I would have. We'd call them, uh, you know, I, I can't remember what we called them, but we'd have these Christmas uh, shows and he and Patty would come and sit there. But Bruce listened to the station every day and he listened to me on the radio. I did afternoon drive before that. I did middays. And here's what I didn't realize. One day I'm with the entire music department and we're in like a, um, you know, a short bus or whatever, a van, going to Page and Plant at the Meadowlands Arena in Jersey. And as we're getting out of the vehicle, I start hearing them imitating Bruce Springsteen. And they're like going, yeah, man, you know, Peterfield. <laughs> Page and Plant are doing this? No, these guys were, these bought my, my co-workers. My okay, co-workers okay. were doing it. And so I was like, what the fuck are you guys on about? And they go, Bruce called up the bosses for you. I go, what? And they go, yeah, Bruce called the bosses. And I'm like, you got to be shitting me. And they're like, no, 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 Bruce called. Um, and sure enough, uh, Andy Schoen said that the, the phone call was like this. Bruce called up and said, um, called Tom Freston and Judy McGrath. And he just said, listen, that Matt Pinfield guy that you hired, he goes, uh, you know, he's a good guy. He's real. He's the real deal. He's a. Uh, He's really down to earth. He goes, listen, he's not from that corporate world. You guys look out for him over there. <laughs> That's what he said. He called on my behalf, completely unknown to me, which was the nicest thing in the world. That's such a great story. It is amazing. And so, you know, all right, so four months, three, four months go by. And I'm thinking, at this point, you would think, oh, he's forgotten me already. The world's, you know, which. So here's the thing. He's rehearsing at Sony Studios. We were being kind of wheeled in and out of there. The music department at MTV, then the VH1 people, then the bosses, then Diane Sawyer and Tom Brokaw. And we're all like, it was when Michael Jackson was putting out that history double disc and they had that really interesting video of the statue of him with the helicopters going around it. And so they wanted us to see that. And so they brought us over to the theater in there. We watched it and we left. So later that night, all the bosses from MTV and VH1 left. And as Bruce is in there rehearsing for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction with the E Street Band. And this greatest story ever is like, so the woman, the English woman, Lauren Levine, who was the, like, took care of talent, like some VJs. So she goes to me, uh, we're on our way to see an Oasis show. And she goes, hey man, Bruce was asking about you the other day. I go, are you fucking kidding me? Really, again? She goes, yeah. She goes, here's what happened. She goes, we're watching that Michael Jackson thing. We all stop in to the room he's rehearsing in at Sony Studios for his performance of the Rock and Roll Fame. So they kind of go in, but they're being quiet because he's finishing up a song. And they said, um, he stops, turns around, and they go, hey, Bruce, how you doing? 
He goes, I'm doing good. He goes, you guys taking care of Pinfield? <laughs> they go, yeah. He goes, all right. And he turns around and starts playing again. And that's it. That's what he said. She told me that story. I was blown away. So I waited seven years to thank Bruce Springsteen for that. I'd seen him live in that time. You know, I even went to one of his Christmas shows at Convention Hall. Mm-hmm. And he saw me in the audience because I saw him, uh, you know, we, we, you know, like I saw, we, we, you know, and, but I, all of a sudden now I'm a VP at Columbia Records, his record label, and he's delivering the rising. So if you're VP and over, you can come to this thing where he plays the whole album. And we're, on the chairs were the lyrics to the entire album, The Rising. And I'm sitting in there and I'd waited all those years to thank him. And so, you know, we're shuffling by him and he just goes, Matt, man, how you doing? And I'm like, I'm great, Bruce. I go, you know, I just wanted to thank you for calling my bosses at MTV seven years ago. I go, you don't know how much it blew me away and means me. So thank you. He goes, hey man, no problem. Don't even mention it. He goes, how you like the album? <laughs> it was so great. So, you know, cause he's so, I love his unassuming way. You know, he just, you couldn't, you couldn't pay Bruce Springsteen to do that. You know what I mean? For anybody. Yeah. He's so pure uh, in that way. So that was an amazing, amazing thing for me, you know? The Rising's um, such a great album, too. I mean, th- you know, is. everybody goes back to his older stuff. And I came into Bruce with, like, uh, Born to uh, Born in the USA because just that, yeah. that was the album that came out when I was really getting into music. But The Rising's yeah. such a great album. One of the greatest experiences I ever had at a concert was seeing Bruce at Giant Stadium, and he's doing Mary's Place. So when he's doing the, the, the chorus, he goes, let it rain, let it rain. The skies opened up completely yeah. opened up and it's pouring over 70,000 people. And he just kept doing the let it rain for about three and a half minutes and everybody lost their shit. One of the greatest experiences I ever had at a concert. See that, isn't that amazing? And you know, only in Jersey, you know, I love that because it's, you know, I had something similar happen when you two played their zoo TV tour, when they did when the, where the streets have no name, it opened, the skies opened up. And I mean, that's not unusual for Jersey, right? But yeah. I mean, Roosting must have been fucking incredible. It was I, nuts. I would have Absolutely loved nuts. to see that. And and that was one of the things that made that moment watching you two, because I'd already seen him in clubs. I saw him at the fast lane in Asbury Park, you know, when Boy came out. They did I Will Follow twice. And um, they were considered a new wave band when they first came out? Yeah, of course. Yeah, they were. Definitely, like everything was that then. If you were new and you weren't like heavy metal or super pop or yacht rock, you were definitely, uh, you know, you were considered new wave. So, I mean, the Cards were New Wave. I mean, there were so many different bands. Tom Petty was considered New Wave. What's that? Tom Petty was considered New Wave, which I think is always weird. really funny, yep. You know, and I saw Tom Petty, like, for $4 with a whole row of kids because I discovered his first album and nobody really knew it. And I noticed it was the one unifying album in my high school in East Brunswick, New Jersey, that, like, the hippies that loved the dead loved it. Um... The dudes who loved metal loved it. Petty was this thing that he was this common ground. And I would play that first album would break down an American Girl and all those songs, anything that's so good. It's one of the best albums ever, right? And then so a very underrated American songwriter. Oh, one of the best. You know, and he um so the next album was You're Gonna Get It. And you know, there was a radio PIX, the radio station, which always changed format. Which years later, ironically, I became the morning show host on RXP, which was 109, but it was still 102. That's what, it was the same signal. Um, in, from 78 to 80, they were like a station that played, it did play the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac, but it also played Elvis Costello, Joe Jackson. Um, you know, it just, it played all, all the new wave stuff that was coming out at that time. And, and it, you know, they, you know, the police and, uh, it was just, uh, the station was so great. And they would do things like play a new album at midnight on a Friday night. 
And I remember before the album came out, recording on a boom, you know, on a boombox, you're going to get it, the second Petty album, and then bringing it to high school, you know, and, mm -hmm. um, and playing it there. And then I bought a row of tickets for me and my friends. I didn't pay, I mean, I didn't, I, they had to pay me back. I mean, I was, I wasn't made of money, man. I was, you know, I mean, I was working at a fast food restaurant, like a Roy Rogers, probably, I think at that time. And like, you know, I delivered papers and cut lawns to buy records when I was a kid, you know, um, nothing got handed to me, you know, so, um, you know, it's amazing seeing Petty back then in that in that small place. And, you know, Ben Montench recently reached out to me from the band. You know, when I was uh, I was having a little, I was, you know, going through some struggles, you know what I mean? And, uh, and I thought that uh, it was amazing that he, he, he uh, reached out, which was super cool. But I always love Petty. And, um, yeah, man, you know, I think the thing about where, since you guys grew up in the same area I did, relatively, right? You were all from that same area. What a great place to, you know, music was, it was always a great place to see music. That was oh, amazing. Did you ever come to Staten Island and go to places like the Factory and Rock Palace? Were you ever oh, on Staten Island? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I went everywhere. You know what I mean? Anywhere in the tri-state area. Take 440 out there, right? Over the Right, right, right. You know what I mean? I go up to Edison, make the go over. You know what I mean? Sean's a little bit uh, younger, but do you remember, like, uh, sometimes at the factory or places out in Long Island, um, Blue Oyster Cult would play under an assumed name, Soft White Underbelly. Do you remember yeah. that? I remember yeah, how exciting it was to see, like, a band of that magnitude in, like, a small rock club. Oh, it was amazing. I've got a great story, too, about, like, when we used to do the Christmas shows uh, with Glenn Burtnick and all those guys, we would do at um, the bottom line. And, you know, until I moved to California the first year in 2000, um, I would sing the Pogues Christmas song, Fairy Tale of New York, with another woman and do that duet. And then eventually, um, you know, I would end up doing that, like, on all the stages in New York City except the Garden. I sang it everywhere. Roseland, Hammerstein Ballroom, uh, Irv Irvine, uh, Irving Plaza. Irving Plaza, yeah. Yeah, I sang it everywhere um, because when I was doing the morning show, my, my co-host, Leslie Fram, who's now, like, running CMT, uh, she was like challenging me in the morning. She heard me sing like I was making. I was. I remember saying that Led Zeppelin, that like a Pearl Jam had ripped off Led Zeppelin for Wish List. It sounded like going to California. So I started singing going to California. She goes, "You can sing pretty good. Don't you love that Christmas song? It's December." She goes, "I'm gonna find an Irish band to do it with you." And sure enough, she found one the next day. We rehearsed it once. That Pogues Christmas song, Fairy Tale yep. New York, and then sang it on the air. I sang it directly into the mic, which took a lot of balls. And then we uh, ended up doing it on stage everywhere in New York City for the next couple of years, including you're wearing a Weezer shirt. Uh, when Weezer did Pinkerton that one night at Roseland, uh, my favorite I, I, album. I went right before them and sang that song. And I, you know what? It was <laughs> that was one of the biggest highs besides the Bowie thing. Hearing your voice echoing, singing off the back of the wall at Roseland was like the most insane rush. I mean, one of the greatest moments. Um, but getting back to the whole thing with Bush, the cult. So we're rehearsing for the second year. We're doing that Christmas thing at the, at the bottom line. This is like 99, 98. And um, we're rehearsing and we're doing the poke song. And, and Glenn asked me, you want to do another song? I go, how about like Wintertime Love by The Doors? It's a waltz. And it's like, it's winter. We're doing a Christmas show, right? So I sing the, I sing the Doors song. And then we do the poke song. And then there's a guitar player there. And uh, then he ends up rolling, he like, you know, he leaves. And they're like, oh man, Buck just left. I'm like, what do you mean, Buck, Buck Dharma? And they're like, yeah, I go, holy shit, wait a minute. And we were rehearsing SR. I ran up the street <laughs> to stop him and tell him how much I love Blue Oyster Cult. I'm like, dude, I didn't know that was you. You know what I mean? And he came and played it that night. And you know, I love, I love Blue Oyster Cult. I always did growing up, you know? Always. So, you know, those records are great. Did you, go, did you ever get a chance to see the Black and Blue tour when they, 
yeah, in the, uh, that, early 90s. Oh, yeah. yeah That's I one of my favorite all-time concerts. Yeah. Speaking of all-time favorite concerts, let's just go through a quick uh, hit list before we wrap this up. Um, best event or concert you've ever seen? Like, what's the one that stands out in your mind? Well, you know, I um, a couple different ones. I mean, I will never forget, like, one of them was still one of the most amazing shows I ever saw, you know, because I was 11, 12 years old, was Queen at the Beacon Theater doing Night at the Opera. Oh, it was Jesus like Christ. Christ. The first four Oh, Queen man. In a theater. And first time oh, I ever saw them was only long hair, so they looked cool. They oh. looked great with long hair, and like, Man, I was, and I loved those first four Queen albums. Like, I mean, they were just. Do you remember what they opened with? Uh, now I'm here, which was oh, great. Oh wow! First song uh, from uh, Sheer Heart Attack, which is one of my favorite albums of all time. Um, did they so, do Prophet Song? Because I, I, I've seen yeah, they Queen did Prophet Song with a thing, and they did. You know what? They did Prophet Song. They did a lot of songs. I actually somebody really cool when I was doing AR gave me, and I they're on DVD or lost. They gave me from England both the tours I saw when I was young, because I went to the garden, because that time, by that time they graduated to the garden after- That was the jazz tour. That was the first time I saw them. Oh, I, saw, well, I actually saw them day at the races. So that Thin Lizzy, ah. and I love Thin Lizzy. So I oh saw Thin Lizzy. God. I saw Thin Lizzy twice. You know, I visited Phil Linnett's grave, or line it, whatever people want to call him. I visited Phil's grave when I was in Dublin. And then I ended up, that was another one of my favorite stories is like, um, I'm out with the guys in the frames, you know what I mean? That band, the frames, who came from the commitments. And then one guy, of course, wrote and directed once. And that movie I love about the kids in Dublin, Sing Street. What a fucking great movie that is about the 80s. These kids form a band. Um, and he did Begin Again. Um, so I'm out with these guys in the frames. And this guy, Steve Leeds, who's like one of the heads of talent over. I've known Steve for years. He's a promo guy, but he works at Sirius XM. So we became very close friends. And we're over there. With the frames, the next night we're flying um, to Cork to watch U2 with U2 on their little jet. And then we're going, I'm going to see this band I loved called The Wonder Stuff, who I was very good friends with. You know, I was with them and Nirvana at Reading 92. And it was with all, and it was just amazing. But anyway, um, so this is in the radio station uh, days. And I'm, I'm there and I'm like out one night watching the frames. And the guy, and Steve Leeds looks at me and goes, hey, don't you love Thin Lizzy, man? I go, yeah, you know, I always said if I came to Dublin, I wanted to go visit his grave. And this guy looks at me and goes, he goes, uh, you, you sure about that? I go, uh, yeah, why? He goes, Phil was my best friend. I'll pick you up tomorrow morning at your hotel and take you there. And this guy, Frank Murray, who managed the Pogues, um, when Shane, you know, in the early years of Shane, was Thin Lizzy's road manager and Phil's best friend. So he picks me up at my hotel. We go out uh, to the cemetery. There's a kiosk on the way. And he goes, I'm not going, we're not going here without picking up some flowers for my best friend. I go, you got it. So we both bought flowers. We brought them. And there was stuff all over the grave. I have some great pictures of it. And then we end up going over to Phil's mom's house. You know, Philomena died not that long ago. But we, I go, and she let me take pictures of his room. She kept it like it was. So oh, there's wow. a picture of him and Brian Downey when they're 16. A jukebox, his entire record collection. It was badass. So I took all these pictures. You know, I'm one of those instant cameras, you know, of course. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I still have a lot of those, but I love Thin Lizzy. So I saw them with Queen. That was one of the greatest shows ever. Also, seeing The Clash debuting London Calling was also incredible at the Capitol Theater. Uh, I was also there at the Night of the Palladium when, they, when Paul Simon had smashed his guitar on the cover. Did you go oh, to the Bond shows? 
Uh, I did go to one of the Bond shows. I did go, you know, and of course they were shut down. So they extended them all because they wanted to make good for all their fans. So I went to that for Sandinista. Um, and uh, yeah, so like the, the Clash were another one of these great bands. The Jam were amazing live. But I saw so many shows, you know, back in the day. I mean, I, I saw, I would go to see everybody. I mean, when I was a kid, it was like Aerosmith, Bad Company. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, it's really weird that I loved Kiss, but I never saw them until... They put their makeup back on and did that reunion tour. Isn't that oh, awesome? Oh, wow. That, wow. Yeah, there's bands that always slip through your fingers. For me, I never saw Aerosmith. Well, you know what? I want to tell you, you, if you didn't see them, here's the thing. And I was very honest with them because I've become great friends with them. I see Steven sometimes with a group of my guys. We hang out. And um, I loved Aerosmith so much as a kid. But they were terrible live uh, in those days. Like when they played for rocks and draw the line, like that's why the time I got, and Ted Nugent opened, they sounded like shit. And I was very, very honest with Joe and Joe's done charity stuff for me. Like at road recovery in New York city came down, you know, we have a great friendship, me and the band, but I was really honest. I said, man, you guys broke my heart, man. When I came to see you at the garden and it sound was like, Troy, 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 sound like shit, it was awful. Oh, it was a big, it was the biggest disappointment ever. And you know, Joe looks at me, Joe Perry, and goes, you know what, Matt? Because we were so fucked up at the time that we like thought we were still a garage band and oh no, we don't have to spend money on a good PA. So like they really just, it was like, and then I was there at Giant Stadium the night the Guns N' Roses shot the video for Paradise City, right? And it was, the, it was Guns, Deep Purple, and then Aerosmith. Aerosmith were phenomenal uh, permanent vacation was the new album at the time and they were like they redeemed themselves for every bad show that i'd seen which was only a couple but they were i mean steven was doing backflips they were on fire and they owned giant stadium that night so hmm. you know they redeemed themselves in a big way with me and then i did a private gig with them at hollywood palladium years ago they flew me out from jersey and they were playing, like doing Seasons of Wither and all these great songs, like at the Hollywood Palladium for a small for a crowd that had won this thing. So, yeah, man, the shows are just, uh, you know, I'm grateful for all the shows I've seen. I got to be honest with you guys, COVID really fucked with me because I just um, love going to live music all the time, you know? And mm. uh, this was going to be an incredible year for it. 18 it concerts, 18 concerts I had tickets for. Yeah, you know, it's unbelievable. And I'm in touch with all those musicians and a lot of those guys. And, you know, and especially the small bands, they're, they're like, they're really suffering. You know what I mean? Oh, but sure. I can't wait. I mean, I was, I was ready to go see Guns again, too, man. I was like, fuck, I want to go see Guns. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I was like, there are so many shows I wanted to see. I was going to go to this. They were doing this festival out here. If you like any of like, the 80s New Wave stuff. And it was like, it was called Crew World Festival. My friend Jim Philippan was putting it on, the Golden Voice, the company out here. And it was Morrissey, Blondie, Bauhaus, uh, Devo, Psychedelic First, Echo and the Bunnymen, Gary Newman, like 150. You, you had me at Morrissey. Yeah, dude. He, and Morrissey was the one who curated it with him. Morrissey named it Cruel World. It was going to be badass. You know, right. it's going to be really cool. It's, it's, it's a shame. We, you, you, were t you know, we had uh, Mark Rizzo on here from Soulfly. And, oh, yeah. Mark's a good dude, man. And, yeah, Jersey guy. And he's said he lost a year's worth of work because of COVID. Yeah, my, my heart goes out. You know, that's the thing, you know. I, my heart goes out to all the people, you know, the bartender, you know, the club owners, you know, the guys that the guitar techs, the drum techs, you know, the merch people, all the people that depend on that every year. It's just, it's heartbreaking, man. 
You know, and now I saw somebody say uh, recently on the press yesterday, they didn't think, my, my friend Mark Geiger, who used to be the head of William Morris Touring, I've known him for years because he started Lollapalooza with Perry, you know, and, but I knew Mark before that. Mark and I were friends through Dramarama, another Jersey band who got big in California, who I love, you know, they're my the brother. band that should have been bigger than they were. Much bigger, much bigger. Such a great band. John Easdale, what a great songwriter, man. I love that guy. Um, yeah, you know, um, I, it, it's sad right now, you know, we just got to all hold on, you know, and, uh, but isn't it amazing how like the UK, they like put a $5 billion bill together for the arts, to, uh, you know, help sustain venues, musicians, all these programs. And why the hell can't we do that here? You know, it's, know, it's, it's because terrible. we have leaders that paint murals on the floor. Yeah. That's the reason fun. why. <laughs> it's pretty fun. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very, I got to tell you guys, I'm just very grateful, A, to be alive, because I definitely pushed the envelope too many times in my life being a fucking wild man. I'm so grateful to be sober right now. You know, I had a relapse during COVID, you know, like I started drinking again. And it was, you know, what part of what that was, was the COVID insanity, because I'm so used to like hanging out with my boys, going to like recovery meetings. You know, a lot of comedians you guys know, I'm friends with all those dudes go to their shows at comedy store and everywhere around here. And, you know, and then a lot of all the rockers, you know, like all the rockers that, you know, that are the ones that are open about it. And the other, a lot of the other ones want to keep it very anonymous. So I would never break that for them. That's a code, um, you know, but, um, you know, I mean, we couldn't do meetings anymore, but zoom meetings. Um, I was out at shows three, four nights a week, going out to dinners, going out to see movies. I'm just a guy who likes to be active. Uh, so, you know, so I, you know, I, was, it felt like Groundhog Day, and one day I picked up the bottle and, you know, started drinking vodka again, and it was like, it wasn't good. Um, you know, it wasn't like I was laying on the floor, like, thrown up on myself or anything, but it was just, it was becoming it where... It brought you back to a bad place. Yeah, it brought me back to a bad place, guys, and I was like, um, and my friends noticed it, and then they, like, did that incredible GoFundMe thing, which I was horrified about, you know, they, at first, because I'm like, I'm halfway on my way to, to treatment, Talk to the guys at Music Cares, you know, and, um, you know, I was, I didn't really want to, I, I didn't want to ask anybody for anything in a pandemic or, or any, anything from anybody, period, you know, but there's only so much insurance covers. So I went into treatment. Uh, I did a month um, up in Sausalito, uh, California, and it was a great opportunity for me to reboot, you know, and I, um, you know, I feel really great now and I'm, I'm on fire, man. And I'm just, I'm just, I'm in a really, really great place. And, you know, I, when I went, when Rolling Stone printed the article with my story, like last week or maybe the week, you know, like it's, I don't know, it's been about 10 days maybe. Um, I, it was amazing the response I got because I have no fear. Like I think, you, you know what, you gotta own who and what you are. So for sure. me, you know, I've always had people say, Matt, you have a platform, you know what? Use it for good, use it to let other people know, you know, that they can get help and that, you know, they're not alone. And that was what I did, you know? So when they wanted to interview me about it, man, I gave it, I, I, I was, gave the whole story, man. I was so open about what happened, you know, like relapsing during COVID and life in general. And I got so many letters, man, from New York City, you know, everywhere, Paris, Australia. Uh, and, you know, people on my socials that were saying, you know, like one woman, I, my heart went out to her. Her son in New York City was 30 and, um, and he died and his best friend, uh, OD'd after five and a half years of being sober. So it's like a really, COVID has really affected uh, the recovery community and people. Sure. Uh, so it's, you know, so what I'm doing is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm out there, man. And I've been 
people have been reaching out that I know that have gone through similar things and I'm like staying in touch with them and trying to be like a, somebody to lean on and support. And I feel like that's my responsibility, man. He said, you know, like, it's like, I have the platform. I, if you don't use it for something good, I think sometimes it goes away, it'll go away. And so I'm just want to be super honest. I own it. You know what I mean? I always, like I said, it doesn't define me. What defines me is who I am with the music and everything else. And as a father, you know, the things, uh, you know, but it is a part of my life and a big part of my history. And I, um, and I just don't want to live my life with hiding anything. I've always been a very, very honest, straight up guy. And I, that's, you know, the only way to be. So, you know, I'm feeling fucking great. And, you know, it was amazing doing that broadcast last night with fan tracks. And I've been doing a bunch of different stuff, but I mean, the whole, the whole crew was like, holy shit, you nailed this thing tonight. And it was, it was a great feeling. And, you know, you can't do that if you're not sober. You know what I mean? If you're, if you have struggled in the past, you know, you, uh, you gotta be on your game. And so I'm just really psyched, man. I, you know, I'm in good spirits, you know, and, you know, I, I, speaking of like guys that are, you know, in support, you know, I'll never forget my social media blowing up uh, in the beginning of 2017. And people are like, did you hear what Howard Stern said about you this month? And Howard got on the radio on a Monday morning, opened his show and goes, you know who my favorite DJ is? And they go, and uh, Robin and goes, who? He goes, Matt Pinfield. And he goes, and he went on to say why he liked my, me on the radio and me, you know, and I was blown away because, you know, I worked with him at K-Rock and we always got along. Like, you know, when we see each other in the halls or at like Christmas parties, but that was like the most, the nicest thing ever, you know? And uh, that, you know, that meant a lot to me because I have so much respect for him as an interviewer, you know, and as a radio personality. So that was really great. But, you know, those are the things it's like zip lying across a crowd. The things, the things with David Bowie, having Bruce and Howard, like, you know, in a, you know, endorse you. Um, those are things, you know, you, you, you look at those life things and you realize that those are the things you have to definitely hold on to during crazy times like mm -hmm. this in COVID because so many people are out there suffering, you know, and, uh, and my heart goes out to so many of them. And I, me as a father, you know, I have two daughters and I'm so grateful. I was concerned about how they were going to be doing and their mental health and they're both, both doing, they're both making it through and they're doing good, you know, and I'm. So, very grateful. So that's them. all that's important. That's the only thing that matters at this point. Yeah. I love my daughter. So like, and I, you know, family and stuff, and friends. I'm very blessed, but I, you know, guys, I just had such a, an amazing time with you guys. Thank you. So listen, we, you look great. Thank uh, you. I mean, we enjoy watching you on, um, on access TV. You know, I mean, you. you give great insight into, to any segment that you're part of. And we really appreciate you spending uh, as much time as you did with us, man. We really do. Um, I, I wish you nothing but the best, Matt. I really do, man. Been a fan of yours for a long time and will continue to support anything that you put out there. Uh, Sean, anything you want to wrap up with? Yeah, I mean, Jeff and I had one of those really surreal Rock and Rio experiences last night when we did a, a comedy show in a parking lot off of uh, Northwood Avenue in Linden. So, you know, I don't want to, I don't want you to have a big head, Matt, you know, you know, and zip no. lining 150,000 people. We had 22 cars in a parking lot last it night. Was the farm. Farm. No. I'm so glad you're doing it. We I'm have to, we it. have to do it. Dude, Lyndon Newark, Elizabeth, man. I know it all. You know what I mean? I, uh, I just, uh, you know, do you guys, do you guys like going one? What, do you guys love going to the Ironbound and eating Portuguese food ever? You ever go? Oh there? my God. Fernandez Steakhouse, Iberia, yeah. Fornos, take I've your pick. Heard. Fucking great, man! I love it. Right next yeah, time, next time you're in town, 
Guys, we got to go out. I will do that. Let's yeah. go John out. Jeff. Yeah. I, <laughs> man, let me just tell you, I would love to, I'd love to have dinner with you guys. It'd be really cool. We could, we could meet up, talk music. Absolutely. Comedy, Absolutely. I, I, I enjoyed being with you guys here today, man. It was, Thank uh, you. It was, it was an, it was an honor. It really was. It was really, really a pleasure guys. And, and thanks for doing it. And, you know, let me know what's up, but it was such, it was a lot of fun. And, uh, the weather be, out there today. Be well, be well. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a nice balmy 96 degrees here today. I, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I can't wait till I can actually fly there and not be under two weeks quarantine. I mean, who has two weeks? <laughs> you yeah, know I mean? That's the thing. Yeah. I want to come back to the East coast. Believe me. I want to come see everybody, man. I, I was really hoping I'd be able to visit the Jersey shore. Um, Do hit out. us up, man. Definitely hit us up. Yeah, I want to hang with you guys at some point. As, yeah. Asbury is hopping right now. It is. Hopping. Yeah, it is right. It's so killing. is Astoria. Yeah. Oh, great. <laughs> Greatest Greek food, man. Right. Greatest. Greek yeah. Food. Big time. Love that. Hey, guys, uh, listen, thank you so much for having me on. You know what I thank mean? My pleasure. My pleasure. And, uh, and we'll talk to you guys again soon. All right. All right. Be well. All right. You got it. I will. Thank guys. You, Thanks a lot. Thanks for so uh, long. All right. That wraps up another Who's Your Band. Okay. We got another show coming up. Uh, actually, this week, we have Ron Bloomberg from the New York Yankees and Harris Stanton. So uh, look out for that. Parting words, Sean. Uh, we should have ziplined across the parking lot in Linden, New Jersey last night. I think that would have been an epic. <laughs> I'm sure there was, I think there was a guy taking pictures on his cell phone. So we'll, we'll, we'll yeah, we're good. We'll listen, okay. we'll, we'll Photoshop Matt Pinfield into the, into the <laughs> shot. So that was a great, All right, man. I'll see you in a couple of days. Adam, take care. Thank you for everything. And we look forward to, uh, to more of this. Take care, everybody. Be Later, well. Guys.